If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter number 16. If you don't know, it's towards the front of your Bible. Genesis, Leviticus chapter number 16, where we're going to be today. Uh, and I just want to say, give a huge shout out to um, Rick and Judy and Mary and Peter and their whole team that go every single Saturday down to minister to the homeless um, on a, just a regular basis, just making it happen, loving on people um, that can do absolutely zero in, in return. I think that's the highest form of giving that we have as people is to give to those who can't possibly ever give in return. And so I just want to give you guys a shout out. Thank you for all that you do. Um, amen. Yeah. Now listen, if you are not involved in something like that, that's a great opportunity to get involved in. Um, I think you guys meet here on Saturdays at 1030. Uh, or meet downtown at 11. Okay, so we'll see Rick or Judy after service and then give you all the details for Peter and Mary. They give you the details of where to meet and how that all works, but it's incredible. I've taken my kids. I highly encourage you, not, not, not your little bitty ones, okay, but your older ones who will grasp it um, because it, it makes a world of difference. The number one indicator for teenagers making that transition to being faithful adults um, in the church, statistically speaking, now that we can get to some of those facts, one of the number one indicators for them maintaining their faith long-term through life and not falling away, like we hear that statistic thrown out all the time uh, when, they're, when they walk out of high school, when they graduate high school, number one indicator is if they've gotten involved in some kind of missions opportunity, whether that is uh, Saturday at the Homeless doing something for somebody that can never do anything back or going on a missions trip overseas, out of the country, Mexico, anywhere. It's a huge opportunity. So take the time to do that. Get involved yourself. Love people that can't do anything in return for you. Um, it will make a difference in your life. Um, so with that being said, let's jump in today. Uh, today's message is entitled, A Place of Grace, A Place for Grace. It's, it's a big deal that we create a place for grace. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a message with you called, A Place for His Name. Today, we want to look at um, the idea of creating a place for grace in our lives, in our church life, in our community. So we're going to take one chapter out of the book of Leviticus that will set us up for what this is. Okay, so in, in this um, one chapter, Leviticus 16, it shapes everything else that Leviticus has to offer. Everything is shaped around this one central, central chapter. Everything in the book, you could say, either leads up to or flows from it, just like water coming down from a mountaintop. That's the way the whole thing works. And so in this chapter, God gives instructions on this really important day, a very important day in the life of the Jewish year. And it was a day that is still known on the Jewish calendar as Yom Kippur, which literally is translated to mean the day of the, your, the, day of the covering. It means you're covered, you're good, right? Uh, it's it's kind of like if you've ever gone out to eat. How many of you have ever had this, like your kids did this? They get there and all of a sudden, oh, hey, I forgot my wallet, Right? You tell them, it's okay, I'll cover it, don't worry about it, right? It means you're going to pay the price. That's the idea behind Yom Kippur. Now, if you ever had kids like me as, uh, you know, an early 20-something, you'd forget your wallet in the car just so mom and dad would pay anyway, right? No, none of you have ever had kids? Okay, anyway, sorry, I'm a sinner. There's an altar, I'll be right down here after service, okay? But as, as we get into this a little bit, um, you, you may feel like, man, that's a great history lesson, but how does this apply to us? How does this apply to me right where I'm at, right where I'm living? Hang in there. It's, it's going to change the way you think about it. In fact, 
Think of Leviticus this way, that the whole book deals with a problem that every single one of us face at some point in our lives, and that's feelings of guilt about certain things we've done. Amen? Anybody ever felt guilty? Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't felt guilty, you've never sinned, or you've never been honest about your sin, but that's a different story. If you can relate to that, then guess what? You're on course today. We're all, all going to be tracking together to work through this, okay? Uh, and in fact, uh, I know a lot of you probably could say when you walked in today, with the, there's probably some secret that may be eating you up on the inside, if we're honest, right? And somebody says, hey, I know what you did. And the first thing you do is, oh, no, what do they know, right? How did you find out? Like, uh, we, we had those moments, right? The thing about secrets is they'll make you sick if you're not careful. You've got to get those out. And hiding things is not the way to do it. So... It could be lots of things, you know, you've been a bad parent, a bad husband, a bad, bad wife. You know, you know, there could have been all kinds of issues that you faced and dealt with, but here's the thing. You've got to be able to move past that. A lot of times what guilt does is it leads to shame. Shame is this, this question that we ask, what kind of person am I who could do something like that? Or we ask, what if people found out that I've done that? I've heard some of you share some of your story, and you're like, okay. Some of you have heard me share parts of my story. You've never heard the whole detail. You know why? Because I'm never going to tell anybody the whole detail. Like this year's our, our 20-year class reunion uh, from high school. I know I'm just a young whippersnapper, and some of you are going, man, you're an old fart. I get it. We're on both sides of the table. Um, but here's the thing. I'm not going back to my 20-year reunion. I'm not that person anymore. And I don't want to be reminded of who that person was either. Because he's dead and gone. Thank God for grace. But I don't want to go back and have to relive through that. So I've moved beyond it. Why do I keep pulling that stuff back up? We do the same thing. We've got to let that go. There, there are some things, right, that when we confess it, people like are nodding at us. Way to go. You're getting past that, right? You know, I used to struggle with pride or I've overcome uh, uh, you know, this issue in my life, uh, anger and all kinds of people nod. Then there are some sins that if we confess them publicly, people look at you different, right? You, you did what? It's a whole different kind of idea. We look at it and we're like, I'm not, not sure you could be around my kids ever. Mm -mm, no way. Let's be honest. We have these moments. And we've all had certain things. And then there's this thing that psychologists refer to as covert guilt, where you feel guilty about something and you have no idea why because you didn't even do it. Anybody ever had that? I've had those moments. It's like, why do I feel bad about that? I didn't do it. I feel bad, but that's a whole different thing that we've got to get to. But all of this begs this one question. Am I going to be judged? That's where it all springs from. Am I going to be judged? And people throw out probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible and can't even quote it, but they say this all the time, right? Don't judge me. Anybody had somebody tell you that? Don't judge me. Don't look at me that way. Anytime my daughter is in trouble, you know what she loves to tell her daddy? Daddy, don't judge me with tears streaming down her face as she's about to get to meet the, uh, uh, ha have a, a, a meeting at the seat of understanding with the board of education. You know what I'm saying? And so we help her through that and learn she's not being judged. It's just, you know, it's the way sin works. If you sin, there's a price to pay. And some of you are totally not tracking right there, and that's okay. But here's the thing. It boils down to that, and people love to throw that out, right? Don't judge me. I didn't do it. You're no better than I. Because we, we, we get down to this really strange thing where we've brought this man-centered view 
of sin into the equation, and it's just not the way, uh, it's just not the way that it works. Because a man-centered view looks at it all wrong. Even for people who don't believe in God, they, th- this idea of am I going to be judged, it still lingers, right? Because we need some kind of atonement or some kind of redemption. So let me ask you this really important question now that we're going to ask again later on. If you died today, do you know absolutely for sure that you would be good enough for God to let you into heaven? Do you know that you would be good enough for God to let you into heaven? And see, it's a trick question, okay? And we'll get to why it's a trick question as we move through this, okay? But here's how, here's how Leviticus gets really relevant to us because guilt and shame are universal, okay? It doesn't matter if you're in the, here in the U.S. or if you're in another part of the world. Guilt and shame are universal feelings. Um, and, and really, we, we begin to ask this question. If you're really guilty... Why and what can you do about it? So we're going to look through Leviticus to answer this. And and really, the day of atonement, the day of examination, it starts, the idea of what we're looking at starts in Leviticus chapter number 10. And it starts with this very sobering incident. It begins in verse number 1 of chapter 10. It'll be on the screens for you to follow along. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That sobering moment of God saying, you didn't do it right, sets up Leviticus 16, okay? In verse number 2 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time. Don't come just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. In this way and give some prescribed things. Now, let me just make sure we're all tracking and we understand a couple of things. And we're going to show you, I want to show you a couple of pictures of the way this is all set up, okay? Because in the temple, there were two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. Fran, go ahead and put the first one up. This is going to be the tabernacle, okay? So this is the whole area that all the sacrifices were made according to Jewish custom, okay? You had the altar, the laver, the court of tabernacle, the slaughtering tables, and then inside the tabernacle would be the, the, the tent of meeting. Go to the next one, Fran. This is the temple, okay? And you can see there, it's, it's kind of a 3D looking inside of it. In the front part of it, okay, again, there's two rooms that are set aside, okay? In the Holy of Holies, um, you have the Holy, here inside the temple, sorry, you have the holy place and the most holy place. It's two separate spots the priests would enter into. In the Holy of Holies, you would have the Ark of the Covenant. Next picture frame. You would have the Ark, okay? Inside the ark, there were a few sacred relics, but on top of it was what's called the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest would come in and splatter the blood of the sacrifice in order to atone for their sin. That's where, where all of this was happening. It's, it's not really much of a chair. It's more of a chest, okay? But that's where God's presence would rest. On top of the mercy seat there, you see the two angels with their wings out, outstretched coming together. to uh, Kind of like they're standing guard over God's presence. It's very similar to when God put the angel at the Garden of Eden, right, to make sure that Adam and Eve didn't enter back in. It's a very similar type of thing. So the Holy of Holies was where the ark was, and there was a huge veil. Fran, if you'll go back one picture. There's a huge veil that separates 
the, the whole place. So the Holy of Holies is that back part. And you've got this veil there. It was four inches thick. It was woven of 72 uh, blue and red and purple cords, each with 24 strands. The veil was called a parroquet, um, which literally means shut off. It was so thick it kept everything out. You couldn't see in, you couldn't hear anything, nothing. And literally, when the high priest would go in as a part of his garments, the bottom of his garment had bells on it. And if ever the bells start, stopped jingling, the cord that was tied around his ankle would be used to drag his dead body out from the Holy of Holies because there was sin in his life when he entered in God's presence. Now, the main part of the whole temple, the whole tabernacle, everything you saw would be pretty busy, the outer courts and everything, because the priests were going about their daily duties, offering sacrifices, making everything work the way it was supposed to work. The priests would go several times a day and, uh, and do their religious rituals, but not the Holy of Holies. It could only be entered by one person, the high, most high priest at the time, and it could only be entered one day a year, and that was on Yom Kippur. One day, that's it. So chapter 16, and I know I'm giving you some history, so hang with me, okay? And chapter 16 sets up the way this whole process works, okay? It sets up the process for the high priest to enter the holy place. So I want to give you a summary of what that was like according to one Old Testament scholar. He says a week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion. He was taken away from his home, put into a place where he was completely alone. A lot of people ask, why in the world would you do that? Well, they didn't want him to accidentally touch or eat anything that was unclean. If he did that, then he would die. And that, during that time, they would bring him clean food, food that was approved according to the law for him to eat. And, and during that time, he would prepare his body and prepare his heart. Now, the night before the Day of Atonement, the night before, he stayed up all night praying and reading God's Word to purify his soul. And then on Yom Kippur, he bathed from head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen. And basically on the day, he goes in and out three times into the holy place, okay? He goes into the Holy of Holies. He offers an animal sacrifice to atone or pay for the penalty of his own sin. Then he leaves there. He goes back out, and he goes through the whole process again. He bathes head to toe, gets dressed in pure white linen again, sacrifices an animal, goes in and offers the sacrifice, this time for the sins of the priests. Okay, he goes out, bathes head to toe again, gets dressed in pure white linen again, and goes in this time to offer, offer a sacrifice and atone for the sins of all of the people. This was done very publicly with only a, uh, a mild uh, screen, thin screen that separated where he was going through this process and the entire temple court of everybody seeing what was going on. They would make sure that he followed every principle, every moment, every detail was done exactly the way that it had to be done because he was their representative for God. If he didn't atone for their sins, their sins would not be forgiven. If he didn't do it right, it was a big deal to get it done right as their representative before God. So chapter 16 explains that this part of the sacrifice ritual, part of this was to choose two goats in the process. One goat would be used as the sacrificial lamb. They would kill it, sacrifice it, and it would be used to atone. The other one, verse number 10 of Leviticus 16 tells us, was a scapegoat chosen by lot to be sent away. He will be kept alive standing before 
the Lord. Verse 21 says um, that Aaron will lay both of his hands on the, the goat's head. The high priest will lay both of his hands on the goat's head, confess over it all of the wickedness, the rebellion, and the sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all of the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. I found it interesting because in studying this, I found this one tradition that said that they had one person, a different person, who was responsible to make sure that goat found its way off of a cliff out in the desert. It would make for some really interesting theological campfire discussions if the goat came wandering back into camp, right? Hey, our sins are revisiting us. That's a bad omen. I don't know if you know what you're talking about. That, that, that'd be crazy, right? Oops, bad mistake. It's going to get bad. So that whole process, right, works us through of what sin and forgiveness and guilt and shame are to be done with, right? So we learn from this about, about guilt and sin, and we see some different things I want to look at today. Number one, we see that our sin is much worse than we imagined. Our sin is much worse than we could ever imagine. Some of you are like, yeah, you're right. Because you know what you've done. You don't know what I've done, but my sin is much worse than you could imagine. Reading Leviticus, you get this sense over and over again that there's this gulf, this separation between us and God, right? That we've been shut off, that there's something between us. Again, at the beginning of the message, I asked you, if you die today, do you know absolutely for sure that you'd be good enough to get into heaven? The question behind that is this, what is the standard God uses? What's the standard that God uses? What's the passing grade? How good is good enough? Leviticus answers. And it's a tough, tough answer. Because according to Leviticus, the answer is absolute perfection. Any of you absolutely perfect? No? Bunch of sinners? We all are sinners saved by grace, amen? That's the beauty of all of this. Because Nadab and Abihu, they, they, they understood that one false move, one sinful movement, and you could die. They got it, and they failed, and there was consequence to, to be paid. The problem is we have a man-centered view where we say, oh, my sin's not that bad. I, I didn't do what they did, right? We think that I, I'm better than that because I didn't fulfill such a horrible thing in our own sight. That's why James says sin is sin. It doesn't matter. If you've committed one, you've committed them all because before God, sin is sin. It's an infraction. It's to miss the mark. Sin is so, so sinful and such an issue because of who it's against. Now, if I get mad and, and I have a moment of frustration, right? And I'm having that moment in the kitchen and I punch the refrigerator like a friend of mine did and break my knuckle. Who is that a sin against? Me, right? I get to bear the stupid mark for the rest of my life with a broken, broken bone that every time somebody shakes your hand, it pops. I have a friend who did that. They make sure they hang a family picture over the dent because he still has the refrigerator to this day. If I get angry at my dog, slap my dog, what typically would a dog do? Bite you right? I've sinned that way. If I get angry with my wife and smack her, well, she's going to call the police if she doesn't call her uncles first. And as I think through that, I'd rather her call the police than her uncles because at least I'd still be alive. Here's the thing. I've sinned against her. Now, if I decide I'm going to be Chuck Norris and roundhouse kick the president, there's a whole different issue there, right? You're not, it's not going to go well. You're going to have a, a, a file with the secret service if you make it out of that moment alive. It's just not going to go well. There are different grades of sin that we deal with 
But standing before God is the same. Either you've done it or you haven't. Either you're cleansed or you're not. That's the thing because let's be honest, we're all filled with sin. And all we think, all we say, and all we do, uh, Leviticus even has this one category for unknown sins. Man, when we get saved, we find out there's a whole lot of things we didn't know were sin while we're learning to walk with the Lord, right? I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that anymore. Yes, you're right. You weren't supposed to do that. And I'm not going to give you a list. You can find your own. Read the Bible, okay? But it, it deals with this, even in our best actions, right? Like standing up here preaching, there are moments that sinfulness and my motivation is worked in, and let's be honest about it, right? Because sometimes I'll say, well, you know, I'm up here and I'm thinking, wow, these people are, are, are listening, and I get filled with pride. Wow, I'm becoming a good speaker. And sometimes I'm up here preaching, and I'm thinking, I'm mad at that person over there. What, what in the world is that? And you have these moments that get worked in, even in our best of motives, Right? Even in our best intentions, sometimes sin still finds its way in. The, the Puritans had this phrase years ago that said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even our tears of repentance, even in those moments. Because Leviticus shows us how much worse and more pervasive than we could have ever imagined our sin really is. In fact, it's so bad, think of it like this. Let me give you a good analogy. If you had to have a blood transfusion, the way God sees sin, it would be like you getting a blood transfusion and finding out that there was one molecule of the AIDS virus mixed in. Is that good enough to put in your body? Just, just one molecule, it's no big deal, right? Or somebody offering you a, a glass of milk only to learn that they'd put a tablespoon, a tablespoon of urine in it. Not going to drink it anymore, right? Except the Bible says that sin is much worse than that. In fact, it's a million times worse. It's so bad, sin is like taking flax paper and trying to touch the sun with it. It's going to burn up immediately, and not just it, but you are going to be consumed in the same process. Because sin is all-consuming. It gets into everything. Thank God we understand that our sin is much worse. But more than that, grace is even greater than we could have ever dreamed. God's grace is so much greater. Why in, the, why in this story did they have to use two goats? It illustrates two separate things. One, the first goat that was slaughtered for our sins, it shows us that our sins have been paid. It's called justification. It means that there's literally no claim against us. If you were to have a wreck, uh, you wreck your car, all of a sudden you know, you're dealing with that, the other insurance company gets involved, your insurance pays the claim. What that does at the end of the day means you have no more claim. The other person can't see you. It's been paid. It's done. Why? Because it's been paid in full. That's what justification is. There's no more claim against you. The other one that was set free teaches us the principle and the concept of cleansing. That God not only pays our sin, but he removes it from us as well. The first goat shows us that we're forgiven on the basis of substitution. The second goat, that our sins are forgotten and removed from us. Just like the psalmist said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, and God remembers our transgressions, he has removed our transgressions from us. That's the beauty of what God does, amen? I don't know about you, but I'm glad my sins aren't just forgiven, but they're forgotten and they're removed. That they're taken away. The prophet Micah, he said this. He said that God puts our sins at the bottom of the ocean. Corey Tinboom, a famous uh, uh, World War II survivor, she said that God then, where, where Micah says that God deposits our sins at the bottom of the ocean, God hangs a sign over it there that says no fishing. That's good news. They can't be brought back up. That's the beauty of what God does with our sins. He not just forgives them, but he removes them. That's what God does. 
I know there are people who say, well, I feel like my sins are probably too bad. I, I don't think God can forgive me. Well, if you look at verse 16 in chapter 16, it, it says, whatever their sins may have been. Whatever. There's no classification in there that says this is not forgiven and that's not forgiven. I know people say, well, I think I've committed the, the sin against the Holy Spirit. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I can't be forgiven. Guess what? If you desire forgiveness, you haven't done it. That's God still drawing you. That's the beauty of it. And what Jesus said about salvation doesn't contradict everything else. So if Jesus said you can't be forgiven of that, it's because you wouldn't want to be. That's the beauty of what God's doing here. God's grace is so much greater. I know some people who say, I can't be forgiven. And when they say, I can't be forgiven, listen, you're not exaggerating the size of your sin. You are shrinking the forgiving power of God. Because there's nothing we can do that God cannot forgive if we'll ask. Some will say, well, maybe God can forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. I've heard people say that. Let me say this about that. What you're saying is that your opinion matters more than God's. Stop and think about the complete foolishness that that is. God can and will forgive you. Atonement literally means at one minute. On this day, in this very singular day, this moment, we are, are, are completely purchased and paid for. We are covered because God's grace is that good. And what God puts together, his forgiving and saving power, let no one separate us, what Jesus said. So not only is sin worse and grace greater, but this day was all about Jesus. This is the fun part, so hang with me, okay? When you look at Passion Week, the week before Easter, it's found in John chapter 13 through 18. It's this remarkable series and sequence of events that happens there, right? And what we see here is that the fingerprints of Jesus are all through the sacrifice, right? Jesus, like the high priest, began to prepare a week beforehand. He sets it all up a week ahead of time, and it's called the Passion Week. The night before sacrifice, what does the Bible say Jesus did? He stayed up all night and prayed, didn't he? He goes to the garden and they prayed all night. He stayed up all night. He wasn't clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped to the only garment that he had. And instead of being cheered by people like the high priest was, he was jeered by them and abandoned by nearly everyone that loved him. He wasn't bathed in a purifying pool. He was bathed in human spit. When he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement. Instead, the father turned his face away. One psalmist said, silent as he, as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown of thorns. He was struck dead, even though he had no defilement on him, but he was wounded, is what Isaiah 63 says. On the cross, when he died, he cried out, it is finished, right? Telestai was what was found uh, inscribed on the Roman receipts, and literally that means it is paid in full. In Christ Jesus, God has no more claim against the sins we once had because we have been justified. The price tag that we have, it's marked paid. There's no more claim against me and you. You don't have any debt outstanding. Inside of Jesus Christ, the sin that we once had, it's been paid in full. And as long as we remain in him, it's covered completely. Why? Because that's the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It's the price that he paid on the cross. Amen? That's what he did. In Christ, the curtain was separated 
The curtain that separated us from God, it was a symbol of his perfect flesh, and it was torn so that we could enter the presence of God. During the crucifixion, the curtain was literally torn in two. For the first time in history, the way to God was made wide open for me and you to enter in. Jesus' body becomes the mercy seat, right? Where his blood was sprinkled so that he could, we could find forgiveness of our sins. And when the first disciples showed up in John chapter 20, G, John mentions that there were two angels at the tomb. And what did they find that folded up in between him? But his outer garment, the shroud that he had been, been buried in was left laying there. Just like when Aaron would finish in the holy place, he would take off his outer garments. That's what Jesus did. His body became the, high, the, 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 the mercy seat for us. That's where the blood was sprinkled and the angels stood guard over it. He recreated the day. He recreated Yom Kippur so every day we could have this moment and enter into his grace and enter into his forgiveness and never lose sight of what God has done for me and what God has done for you. That is the beauty of what God has done. Come on. That's the beauty of his power. Not only that, Jesus was the scapegoat. He carried our sins away forever. And ever and ever, he carried them away because that's what he does. If we could summarize the gospel in four words, it would summarize like this. Jesus in my place. He deserved commendation and instead received condemnation. We deserve condemnation and instead because of him received commendation. That's what he does. He takes our sin. He bears our shame. He rose to life. He defeated the grave. A love like this the world has never known. Never, never known. And he did it because, listen, always don't lead to Jesus. Always don't lead to the cross. Always don't lead to right standing before God. And let me explain why. See, Moses, back in verse 2, it says, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come in whenever he chooses into the most holy place or else he'll die. I know people would say, well, it doesn't matter what particular way you try to get to God as long as you're sincere. So as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. Ask Nadab and Abihu if sincerity was good enough. See, the thing is, is Aaron had to go stand in the same place his sons died. Can you imagine what that was like? And yet here as he gets ready to go in, he would tell us there is only one way to come to God. There is only one way to get into his holy presence. And God's the one who tells us how that can be done, not, not us. I don't get to decide that. We can only come one way. But here's the thing. You have to accept the atonement for yourself. Leviticus 16, 29 and 30 explains that it's a permanent statue. And the only way you receive it is by having a Sabbath. Now, here's the thing. When you read through these verses, it says that you receive it. It's given to you free. And the way you receive it is to do nothing. Think about that. Purposely doing nothing. In other words, you can't do anything to earn it. All you can do is rest in the fact that God has already done it and already accomplished it. I think probably one of the five most strange cases to ever appear before the Supreme Court happened in 1833 in the court case of the United States versus Wilson. Versus Wilson. George Wilson had pled guilty to um, theft of mail and to endangering the life of a mail a mail dr driver, like the U.S. Postal Service mailman. 
Because of, because of what he did, somehow that, that got him the death penalty. He was to be executed. Well, President Andrew Jackson decided, uh-uh, we're going to pardon him. Gives him a full pardon. But for some strange reason, we'll never know. George Wilson says, no thanks. I'm ready to die. The case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. They hear the case. And their verdict read this. A pardon is an act of grace. It's a contract. And a contract is not complete unless both sides ratify it. If it is rejected, we have no power in the court to force it on him. I don't know where they got that idea for reasoning, but that's exactly what the Bible says. See, the truth is, it's, there, there are going to be many, when they get to eternity, that they're going to find out their sins were paid for. They weren't too bad. They weren't too guilty. They just wouldn't receive it. They just wouldn't receive it. So we have a job for the rest of our lives, and that is to respond to this great sacrifice daily and daily and daily. Here's the thing. In each of our lives, as God's grace is given to us, we have to allow that to be fleshed out and applied to everybody else around us, right? Sometimes we're really, we can be really graceful and gracious to others, but not ourselves. We don't, think about that for just a second. You can be gracious to others, but you have to be just as gracious to yourself. Sometimes we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt knowing our motives, but we crucify everybody else because of what their, our perceived intent that they had was. We've got to be gracious to everyone else. What if we saw our entire life as a response to the gospel and what the gospel did on that day because it took away our sins? How would our lives be different if that were the case? Hebrews said in response to the ultimate sacrifice, we offer sacrifices of praise. And that's important phrasing because you can't offer a sacrifice for salvation. All you can do is offer a sacrifice thanking God for his salvation. Our entire Christian life should be summed up like this. We have been saved, and because of that, we respond. Because I have received it, I give it away. Paul said in Ephesians 4.32 that the, way, uh, the ways that we're kind to each other should be demonstrated in our response to everybody around us. How we forgive should be noted because we have received his forgiveness. Uh, he said that we, how we behave ourselves in marriage is a direct response to how we've received grace in our lives in Ephesians 5.23. How we give should be a reflection of the generosity bestowed upon us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Peter says how hospitable we are with each other and even how we submit to the government and serve our employers should be a response to the gospel. All of the Christian life is summed up like this. Lord, as you have been to me, so I will respond to others. Now, I know today wasn't a shout them down kind of a message. Quite a bit of history mixed in there, quite a bit of Here's some practical stuff, six points instead of three, 15 pages of notes versus three, and Fran had to follow where I was skipping and did an amazing job. Thank you. Here's the thing, folks. We have to respond. We talk about making a place for his name all day long, praying and loving God and growing in him, and that's wonderful, but if we grow in him but don't grow in our love for others, haven't we failed? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about? We're just a, a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal, but we don't really have love for one another. But having a place for grace, building grace as we engage God's word should also engage us to build a place of grace for others in our lives. 
Every head bowed and every eye closed. And maybe today you just need to respond to God's grace because you've never really responded to more than just an emotional moment. You've had emotional experiences where you thought, yeah, that sounds good, but you never really dug into it and allowed God's grace to be applied to your life so that grace could be applied through your life. If that's you, would you slip up a hand and today you need to respond to God's grace, okay? Who else? Looking across the room. Come on, who else? Don't, don't miss a moment. You know, I asked you before at the beginning of the sermon, do you know that you would be good enough? Here's the thing, you don't have to be. You just have to be forgiven. God will deal with the rest. He will help you get it together. You just have to be forgiven. Bring it to him and get it all on the table. Anybody else? Let's just take a moment. I'm sorry. Hang on. Come on. All right. Here's where the rubber meets the road for everyone else. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I struggle with having grace for others. I'm still with every head bowed and every eye closed. This is, this is where it gets real for us that's you and you'd say, I struggle with having grace for others. Would you slip up a hand? I struggle with being gracious to others. Yeah. Come on. Who else? All right. I judge everybody else based on what their actions were and not their intent, but I judge myself on my intent and not my actions. Listen, today's a day that we can bring it all and get it all on the table and bring it before the Lord and say, here it is. God help. Because the day of cover, he'll cover all of it. You just got to get it all out. All across the room, I'd like for you to stand right where you're at. I know we've gone a little bit long. Thank you for hanging with me. This is the most important part of the service right here. So please don't distract everybody around you. Hang on, don't rush to the door. Right now, our our elders and prayer team are going to make their way here around the altars. And as they do, I want us to respond to God's grace. If you raised your hand and said, I I need to pray for forgiveness of sin and elders from protein, please come on. I need to respond to God's grace for forgiveness in my own life or I need to to respond to grace for others. We want to pray with you and agree with you. That's what these men and women are here to do is to agree with you for God's goodness. Maybe you're here and you say, you know, I've got a, I need prayer for something else. I had a doctor's appointment this week. I've got something happening. We want you to begin to make your this way this way as they begin to lead us in a song of worship. Come on, as people are coming, let's pray and agree with them that God would do what only God can do. Amen. So as you, as you respond, whether it's a sacrifice of praise or whether it's to come forward for prayer, we're responding to God's grace. Amen.